Welcome to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Paul Tordat. Today, we are learning about bird migration. Every spring, millions of birds stream into Alaska from all over the globe to feed, mate, and raise their young. Their ability to navigate and endure make them the ultimate endurance athletes. Dan Ruthroth, a USGS wildlife biologist with the Alaska Science Center, discusses bird migration biology. At the end of the show, we'll also learn about some of the shorebird festivals in Alaska, including the Kachemat Bay Shorebird Festival with Melanie Dufour. Stay tuned for Outdoor Explorer. Dan Ruthroff is a wildlife biologist with USGS, uh, Alaska Science Center. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, Paul. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. We're recording this in uh, mid, er, mid-February, mid uh, so birds are probably thinking about migrating somewhere, <laughs> and, yeah. um, and we're, uh, 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 yeah, so I'm pretty excited about this show. So tell us a bit about yourself, and um, yeah, and why birds? <laughs> Yeah, good question. Why birds indeed? Uh, I stumbled upon birds. I'm a wildlife biologist with the U.S. Geological Survey here in Anchorage, and uh, I first started studying birds in 1995. I got a field job studying western bluebirds, and up until that point, I, I honestly had never really paid much attention to birds. I'd studied biology as an undergraduate and uh, got my first field job studying birds, and that really uh, kind of set the hook. And uh, a year later, I got my first experience working in Alaska, and that further set the hook and I had the good fortune to to study shorebirds when I first came up to Alaska in 1996 and that's really been the focus of my research up here is uh, studying migratory shorebirds so birds like sandpipers and plovers and umbrellas and godwits things like that what and what kind of research are you um are you doing all sorts of research uh I I worked with uh, a couple of colleagues uh, uh Bob Gill and Lee Tibbetts at the Science Center for many, many years. And we've done a lot of work on reproductive ecology of shorebirds. Um, mostly, and more recently, we were working on migration ecology of shorebirds that uh, just trying to figure out where the birds that breed in Alaska, where do they go when they're not in Alaska? So uh, a lot of questions related to climate change, but yeah, usually with shorebirds as a backdrop. Yeah. Um, and when we're, when, I don't know, you just mentioned, you know, your first study with the mountain bluebirds. Like, was there a moment when you went, aha, I mean, this is like for me, or was there like holding a bird? Or was there something that you really went, oh, this is, uh, this is, got, got you hooked? Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, when I got hired for that position, I didn't even know really what a bluebird was. Uh, but uh, this, uh, this nice researcher hired me, took me on good faith that I would work hard and uh, try my best. And sure enough, uh, like you say, holding a bird was uh, kind of a revelatory moment. Uh, we did a lot of work banding nestlings and capturing adults and putting color bands on. And it was just uh, really amazing to hold these little creatures in your hand and think about uh, where they'd been and where they're going and, you know, banding chicks and seeing them fledge. It all just opened my eyes to so much going on around me that I, you know, we all grow up around birds, but it takes a special moment to really make you appreciate them oftentimes. And yeah, for me, it was capturing and holding these birds and getting the chance to, yeah, really get to know them better. Yeah. Let's um, go to migration and um, talk about uh, like what's going on, like where are the birds coming from? 
uh, where they go into um, let's let's sort of what's the general so anyway let's talk with why do birds migrate that's like basic bird migration 101 why why leave like why leave or why stay might be another good question yeah those are both really good questions and uh you know i often try to kind of pose those questions as a human like so many of us want to get out of alaska in the winter like like you say right now it's february and it's cold and it's snowy and uh for the same reasons many of these birds just aren't adapted to deal with these cold temperatures so they're coming to alaska uh during migration to take advantage of this incredible pulse of of resources in the spring you know whether they're eating you know herbaceous vegetation you know grass and sedges or whether they come up here to eat all the mosquitoes that erupt out of the tundra they're all coming up here for that big pulse and uh these are birds that simply aren't adapted to stick around when it gets really, really cold. You know, we have lots of birds that do stay here in the winter, chickadees, you know, soldiering through these cold winters, uh, and they have adaptations to make a go of it. But so many of these migratory birds, they go and leave the state and go back to other places that have abundant resources during the non-breeding season. So they're using these real seasonal environments. So there must be a evolutionary benefit because there's there must be a tremendous expenditure of energy to go these thousands of miles. Yeah. Um, so describe that a little bit. Yeah, you know, the, the easiest answer is that uh, birds migrate because they can, you know, it, it obviously works out for them, but that's kind of unsatisfying. So a lot of the work we do is to try and figure out some of those trade-offs, like, yeah, the incredible energy expenditure that these birds make to come up here is obviously offset by uh, good reproductive conditions and an ability to fledge young and that those young then recruit into the breeding population. So, you know, in sort of the, the theory of, of, of biology, this is a, a good life history strategy that these birds are doing this because it, it, it makes sense for them that uh, for them to stay and breed uh, without migrating, uh, certainly there are a lot of birds that are non-migratory and make a go of it, but they have really different characteristics than these migratory birds. So these birds, you know, have really adapted, like you say, to come up here and make this migration and take advantage of these breeding conditions here. Great. What, where, uh, let's use some examples, like what's going on, uh, well, this will be aired in end of April, early May, uh, where are they coming from? Uh, what's their, what's their MO? What's their itinerary? <laughs> and yeah, maybe yeah. some specific examples or in general, like what's the flyway? What do the flyways look like? How are they getting into Alaska? Just the general, right, you know, that kind of, where they come yeah. from and how they get in there. That's uh, been something that's really kind of evolved over the last, I would say, uh, 30 years or so that we've always known that birds that breed in Alaska come up from places in South America, Central America, North America. Uh, but we've come to learn more and more that we're getting birds from the Atlantic seabird, seaboard, uh, all over the Pacific, from Asia, Australia, New Zealand. So uh, literally birds migratory birds in Alaska are coming from almost all over the globe, uh, conducting outrageously long migrations. And uh, Alaska is sort of the, the terminus of five different migratory flyways. So birds literally coming from all over the globe to come breed in Alaska. Really unique situation we have here, this confluence of these different migratory flyways. And what are those flyways? Oh gosh, you quiz me. Uh, the Atlantic <laughs> Americas, uh, the Central Americas Flyway, the Pacific Americas Flyway, and then the Central Pacific Flyway, and then the East Asia Australasia Flyway. So that kind of moves from east to west, uh, these five flyways that connect Alaska. Uh, 
Uh, and we get birds from all over. I mean, we have wimbrels from the Atlantic Americas flyaway that fly all the way up across Northern Canada to breed on Alaska's North Slope. Uh, we also have wimbrel that winter in Chile and fly all the way up the coast of the Pacific to breed in other parts of Alaska that, you know, the barriers of the, the Rocky Mountains often form a barrier for these different populations, but we get birds from all over coming to breed in Alaska. And when, so uh, let's take a, maybe wimbles. I think that's one of your specialties, correct? Yeah. So yeah describe that bird to us a little bit for people who aren't familiar with it. Yeah, wimbrel is a, a, a large shorebird. They're a, a sandpiper, essentially. They're, oh gosh, uh, trying to put it in the size of a bird everyone understands. They're, they're a small chicken, uh, let's say, and they're, <laughs> uh, they have a nice streaked head, brown streaks with kind of a white eye stripe. Uh, but their most distinctive feature is their, their kind of long decurved bill. And that's kind of a common characteristic of many shorebirds is that they have these long bills and long legs that they use to probe and soft substrates to get food. And so Wimbrel are distributed around the globe, breeding at high latitude regions. They're really highly migratory species that uh, spends the non-breeding season in sort of temperate and you know, uh, tropical climates but breeds in these high latitude regions. And yeah, we get birds, like I say, from both the Atlantic Basin and the Pacific Basin breeding, breeding in Alaska. You'd mentioned Chile, is that correct? That someone come up from Chile? Yeah, that's about the furthest Southern extent, but it turns out that a whole lot of Alaska breeding wimbrels like to go all the way down to, to Chile, which is you know, uh, a long, long, long ways away uh, for these birds. Yeah, because I don't, I don't think of Chile as tropical. I think it was like, like more Alaska-like. Exactly. And Chile looks a whole lot like uh, Prince William Sound. If you've seen pictures of Chile Island uh, in Chile, it's a beautiful fjord land area. And these birds are kind of on these nice mud flats. And you look at pictures and it looks a lot like uh, what we're familiar to seeing here. Uh, only it's much more temperate with the, uh, the, the uh, Gulf, with the, the offshore currents there, the, the waters around Chile remain very mild. So even in the winter down there, it's, it's typically pretty mild, but of course they're down there during the, the, the summer in Chile. They're chasing summer year round by spending the summer up here. And then when they're down there during our winter, it's Chile's summer, so it's more mild. So it's sort of like uh, snowbirds. I guess that's where the word comes from. I just thought of that, the snowbirds. Are like, exactly. Like, like the, yeah. the, the robin that goes to Florida or whatever. They're just looking yeah. for the best temperature. For exactly. Them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And some of these birds go a long ways to find those nice temperatures. Um, and the wimbrel uh, is, uh, how, how much does it weigh? Like, um, I don't know. Oh, gosh. What's it, what they, well, I guess the better question is, do they, do they gain weight, lose weight? They gotta lose weight during these migrations. Um, they do. How does that work? And they they gain uh, a crazy amount of weight to, in, in anticipation of these migrations. So these wimbrels down in Chile right now, there's probably some little tingle of hormones in their brain that's starting about now that's telling them that they need to start feeding uh, a lot. That they they stay pretty lean during the the, the winter period. Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't even know how heavy they they how much they weigh, I know they weigh about, oh, say 300 grams. And I'm trying to, you know, convert that into, you know, maybe that's what half an apple weighs or something. They're quite light. Uh, they're mostly, you know, feathers and light bones, you know, but then they will double their body mass with fat in preparation for these migrations. And it's not just the fat that they put on, they also kind of reallocate the size of certain organs 
uh, organs that are important during migration. So like the size of their heart increases so that they can more efficiently pump blood, the, the size of their pectoral muscles, which are their flight muscles, those will nearly double in size to improve their flight performance. So they undergo these incredible body transformations and put on tons of weight in, in anticipation of these migrations. I sort of wish that would happen to me right before like, I'm out to do some big outdoor activity that could double my muscle mass. Exactly. And I mean, like these guys, they don't, they, 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 they're not gliding while they're migrating. This is flapping flight the whole way. I've often thought the same thing. If you're going to ski the tour of Anchorage, wouldn't it be great to put on, you know, five magic pounds that melts off while you're racing and you don't need to stop and eat. You don't need to stop and drink. These birds uh, can't land on the water. So they're making these long flights, and as they burn this fat, it produces metabolic water that satisfies their, their water needs. So it's a really efficient system. Yeah, they don't need to eat. They don't need to drink. They just keep chugging along. So the, uh, the, uh, um, the, the birds coming from Chile, are they, is, that, that's the, is that the Pacific Flyway they're coming up? It is, exactly. And they'll make a few stops along the way. Uh, you know, they make often some very long uh, migratory legs with shorter hops in between where they're refueling. Uh, and some of the work we did tracking Wimbrels, we found that there are certain sites that they like to revisit each year, individuals that the population is often spread out. Uh, that, that was another interesting result from our studies that we had birds that wintered in Northern Mexico and all the way down to Chile. So it was this huge non-breeding range for this species. And you can imagine a bird that's wintering in Northern Mexico has a very different migration than one that's, you know, many thousands of miles further south in Chile. So the individual Wimbrels are doing very different things, but they're all coming up to this relatively small little breeding range in Alaska. It's uh, pretty impressive. Yeah, I've, I've seen them in um, Baja. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Yep, I, exactly. I didn't know if those were the smart birds you know, or the, <laughs> or the, or the, or the, or the what, lazy birds or like, why, what, 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 what were they like? Well, I just, I'm not going down there this year. I, I, I like this spot right here. I don't know. And it it's, it's also why that variation or do we just guesses? Uh, that's a really good question and something we'd love to try to better study. Uh, yeah. It sure seems like a, you should migrate no further than you need to. And yet yeah. there are birds that fly um, much, much further. And that's something, uh, you know, re some research that other people have done on Wimbrels in Chile, for instance, uh, those birds have really high rates of survival. Uh, so whatever they're doing, uh, there's obviously survival trade-offs with everything they do. But I think that as humans, we often equate these long movements with survival threats. And that may not be the case for these birds at all, that if, if their habitats are, you know, in good shape and they can reliably refuel at these sites, they can reasonably make these long migrations and have high survival doing so. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and so there, you mentioned they're starting to think about fattening up right now. And I'm assuming this is goes for other birds. We'll talk about maybe Godwits also, and uh, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of creative examples of these amazing migrations. Yeah. Uh, and so when will they start off? When are they, when are they kind of take off and how long will it take them to get back to Alaska? Yeah, well, like you alluded to, some of these birds that are closer to Alaska, say in, in Baja, they can uh, afford to start their migrations a little bit later. Uh, so let's say a Wimbrel or Western Sandpipers in, in Mexico, they're probably going to start their movements uh, in sometime in April, start thinking about moving. Well, 
birds much further south, like Wimbrels in Chile, that's probably going to be sometime in early or mid-March when they're actually leaving and slowly working their way up the coast. So it varies by the species. Uh, some species are kind of renowned for arriving really early on migration, that maybe they come with a lot of body reserves, like certain species of geese. They can come up here when it's still quite cold and wintry in the spring, whereas other species like, say, uh, like Western Sandpiper or uh, the small wood warblers, they rely on insects, uh, so they can't come up here until there's enough food for them to reliably uh, show up and survive. Uh, interesting. This is Paul Tordak. You're listening to the Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm here with uh, Dan Ruthroff with the USGS talking about bird migration. Um, let's. So they're going to very different species take off at different times. Uh, and I'm, how do they know that the insects are going to like? What do we know about? They're sort of understanding or, I mean, there's two different things I'm interested in. There's one is the, uh, how they know how to get here. Um, and I think we know a little bit more about that now. But the other one is uh, how do they know when? Like, that, like they can show up here and, you know, who knows what the weather's doing up here. Exactly. Uh, they, I think, have millennia of uh, experience figuring this out. But, uh, I mean, a, an easy way to think about this is, that these birds are kind of sampling the environment as they're migrating. That oftentimes in spring migration, a lot of these birds, like the, the wimbrels, they're making shorter hops. And so they're kind of seeing what the weather is like as they're going. Uh, and so you might think, oh, great, they're just sort of checking out uh, where the snow level is. Or, you know, there's this discussion, people talk about uh, riding the green wave, that these geese are, are chasing spring conditions as they migrate and they're moving short distances. So that's one way. But then you get some species like say the, like our wimbrels, some of them make their final migratory uh, movement to Alaska from Southern California. Some of them take wow. off from Southern California and fly straight to Alaska. And there's a lot that can go wrong in between here and there. Yeah. So uh, there is a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a gamble. And sometimes these birds, you know, that gamble goes sideways and they show up and the conditions are really poor. Uh, that obviously is not something that birds want to do. And a lot of times there's a, there's a survival cost that sometimes birds show up too early and they starve uh, with a freak snowstorm. But in general, they've evolved their migrations to show up right when conditions are appropriate for them. And that's just probably through lots and lots and lots of trial and error for the species. Yeah, I, I know I've been in down in uh, Homer for the Shorebird Festival down there early May. And uh, in a bad year, well, I mean, in snow year, I remember 2012 in particular, there was a ton of birds there. Like they seemed like they piled up there and were just waiting. And I was wondering, what do they send out scouts? They're like, okay, that, that guy came back. I guess that didn't work out. So we're going to hang out here. And then they're gone. Then they're just, they'll hang out there until it warms up or something happens. And then all of a sudden, poof, they just disappear. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really impressive. Uh, you know, some years, sites like Homer don't get many birds that the conditions, like in an early spring, uh, they often don't need to stop and catch Mac Bay uh, for whatever reason. You know, they may just overfly it completely that as they're making their, their movements and they're approaching Catch Mac Bay and deciding, okay, do I soldier on towards the Yukon Delta or do I stop here and wait a little bit? That those local site conditions, you know, snow cover and temperature, uh, th those will affect those decisions. And like you say, they may just short stop and spend a lot of time in Homer. Yeah. So uh, they're coming up 
on one of the flyways, uh, the other thing I've noticed that, uh, let's talk about when species show up when. It seems like um, the larger birds, meaning geese, um, maybe swans, seem to show up first and leave last. Is that is my impression correct on that? Yeah, I would say that's generally correct, that uh, a lot of these larger bodied species, they, uh, I think the, the general thought is that they have huge body reserves that they can tap into. Uh, so they can afford to show up a little bit early and they also have these different foraging strategies like certain geese, like, uh, like snow geese, they can actually grub through frozen ground and pull out rich, energy rich tubers from certain plants. So even if they show up a little early, they can still kind of make a go of it. Uh, and if things are really tough, they often have, you know, by virtue of having just a big body size, they've got these reserves that they can tap into until conditions improve. Whereas these smaller species that rely on, you know, foods like, you know, bugs, they really need to show up when there are insects because they're not going to last very long with such a teeny body size. If you're just a teeny little hummingbird, you need to show up and know that there's going to be food for you because you can't survive, uh, you can't fast for very long. So those, uh, what we call them pastorines or songbirds, the small ones, mm -hmm. uh, they're the last ones generally to show up? Yeah, typically. And, uh, you know, so you'll just see this, and I'm sure folks here in Anchorage notice this, you know, you, you, you start seeing maybe large raptors passing through and the cranes and the swans and, you know, Potter Marsh, oh, there's some swans have been seen. And, you know, some swans winter very close to Anchorage, but typically not in Anchorage. Uh, so they all start to slowly trickle up and then the snow melts a little bit more and conditions improve and you'll start to hear your first songbirds. And, you know, oftentimes it's a, you know, something like a yellow rump warbler is oftentimes uh, the first pastoring singing in the neighborhoods uh, or juncos coming back early, some over winter here. So, you know, there, there's all sorts of variation, but yeah, that's generally the case that the smaller body birds tend to come up a little bit later. Yeah, I, I took uh, someone told me this, Carl Tobin or someone once told me that it, it, he always thought it was just directly related to um, the small birds and the uh, soil, like this whole interconnected of th things, like the, the fact that when soils melt or thaw, all of a sudden that's the bugs come out. And, and about that same time, the birds show up. And the mm -hmm. same with budding, um, budding plants and trees, it all sort of boom happens almost simultaneously, it seems like. Yeah, and that uh, ability for these birds to track that is uh, really still something we don't understand very well, uh, but it's something they're very, very good at. And that's one thing that there's some concern about is that uh, springs are happening earlier and earlier in Alaska with warming climates. And, you know, I I've seen that just in the time that I've lived in Anchorage, that thing, you know, the snow often melts sooner and the, you know, buds and the willows start to come out earlier and earlier. And some of these birds that are wintering, you know, in Chile, how do they keep track of that? You know, it's, you can't know from Chile what's going on in Alaska, obviously, but typically springs uh, are, you know, now they're occurring earlier and earlier. And so these birds are having to deal with that and make adjustments. And, and we've seen that, that they are adjusting their spring arrival dates, that they do arrive earlier and earlier springs. And in late springs, they can be, you know, held up. But uh, yeah, that's a concern that this might all start to shift in ways that they can't track very well. Yeah, as, as far as we know, at least there's no bird telepath internet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, 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 the guys that are hanging out, or cows that are hanging up here can't uh, 
send an email saying, okay, time to come. Coast is clear. Come on yeah. up. It's warm. Yeah. I mean, it sure seems like that sometimes though. I mean, be, like, you know, birds have these amazing abilities to, uh, for instance, use weather systems on their migrations and how do they know when to take off to take advantage of beneficial winds. It's almost like they do have uh, a meteorologist telling them what's going on. So there's a lot that we still don't understand, but they do have sort of these teleconnections that uh, they are tuned into what's uh, yet ahead in their future. It's really impressive. F follow up on that then, the, the uh, weather systems, like low pressures and high pressures, they're somehow using those to help them migrate. How's that work? Yeah, that's something that's been a, a real focus of um, my, my former supervisor, Bob Gill. He looked a lot at how uh, weather systems, especially during fall migration, uh, facilitate the migration of shorebirds. And as we know, as living in Alaska, fall time, you often just get these series of storms that roll in across the, the Bering Sea and up through the Gulf of Alaska. The solution low pressure system sets up. And so these low pressure cells come through spinning in a counterclockwise motion. And as these lows pass, say, south of the Alaska Peninsula, there are lots and lots of birds, uh, not just shorebirds, but you know, waterfowl and, and land birds, passerines, that take advantage of these weather systems. And they can you know, launch their migrations on the backside of these, these low pressure systems and get a huge boost of a tailwind. And that's a really important aspect to their migration that, uh, yeah, they save a ton of energy with a big tailwind. Yeah, I believe it's uh, one of the godwits, right? That has a pretty amazing migration. Yeah, the bar-tailed godwit. I mean, all the godwits are, are pretty impressive in their migratory movements, but the Alaska breeding population of the bar-tailed godwit is, is really uh, world famous because they fly nonstop from uh, basically the coast to the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta to New Zealand uh, without stopping. Wow. And these birds can't land on the water. Yeah, it's, it's truly uh, just boggles the mind. We can't even conceive of this. We call them marathon migrants, but it's not even a marathon. It's, you know, eight days of flapping flight. That's like something we can't even conceive of. But, you know, I need to sleep every day. These birds aren't sleeping. They're not drinking. They're flapping the whole way. So yeah, really spectacular migration. What's the latest on bird navigation? What are the oh. theories about that? Like what, how they find their way doing this? Yeah, well, I would say Kind of the latest is that they do a little bit of everything that you know it's you wouldn't want to rely on just any one one mechanism but uh that yeah birds do show a really remarkable ability to both orient and navigate that they they can take off from alaska for instance a bar-tailed godwit and they know how they need to orient to get to new zealand but if they get blown off course they know how to navigate they can correct their path and that birds use uh, celestial cues and magnetic cues and olfactory cues, you know, they can smell certain things. It, it's, it's been demonstrated in all sorts of different species that uh, there's just a variety of ways that these birds manage these migrations. And yet still, we don't really know how that godwit finds its way to New Zealand. Uh, we know that it probably relies on a variety of cues, but honestly, uh, there's still a lot of mystery about bird migration, which is uh, really exciting, really. Uh, we, we always like to chase those answers. Yeah, that's, that's great. What, um, 
we'll come back here and we're about to take a break. Uh, what's your favorite story, migration story? Like, like I guess what yeah, what bird really stands out to you besides obviously you're into the wimbrels, but yeah, is that it? Oh gosh, uh, it's so hard for me to choose. I mean, there's just the ones that are completely staggering, like the godwit we just discussed. But then you could also talk about some of the seabirds that uh, you know they their migrations take them from Alaska to New Zealand as well, and uh, with many you know, tens of thousands of kilometers in between as they're conducting their foraging movements, you know, or a, a tiny hummingbird flying from Cordova down to the coastal California. You know, there's so many fascinating stories. It's really impressive variety. And isn't there, didn't they ban a hummingbird in Cordova that showed up in Florida? Is that, do I have that story right? I, I think you're right, Paul. Uh, I'm sure I'll be uh, corrected if we're wrong, but I, I believe that's right, which is, yeah, I think there was a recovery between Florida and Cordova. And then uh, it came so, back, right? It made it, it not only did it, it did it a couple of times, I think. That, that one really amazed me. It's such a small little bird finding their way across um, the continental United States and the ocean, oh, exactly. the whole thing. Yeah, that's great. amazing. Uh, uh, this is Paul Tordock. I've been talking with them, Ruth Rath with the USGS. We'll take a short break. Uh, and be right back with more about bird migration. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. I'm Paul Torlack, your host, and I'm here with Dan Ruthraff talking about bird migration. Dan, this is uh, really fascinating stuff. Uh, let's um, talk a little bit about uh, where to go bird, like what makes a good habitat. Mm -hmm. bird, we have shorebird festivals all over the place. We have a shorebird festival in Cordova and Homer. I think there's a, used to be a turn festival in uh, Yakutat. Yeah, Yakutat and Angle's got a nice shorebird festival. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and those are all focused on uh, really nice productive wetlands for the most part, I would say. Uh, you know, like what makes the Copper River Delta so attractive to these migratory shorebirds is these uh, seemingly lifeless mudflats. But in fact, those mudflats are just full of all sorts of incredibly uh, nutritious and bountiful food for these guys. The, the, the shorebirds in particular are eating small little arthropods, uh, little invertebrates, uh, primarily clams, uh, and just these teeny tiny little clams that it's very easy for us to overlook, you know, smaller than the size of a dime. But huh. these birds uh, probe in the mud with their long bills and they can sense the, the, the clams and they pull them out and, and gobble them up. Uh, so yeah, these these wetland habitats are full of food that these birds rely on during their migrations. And that's why you can go see them so reliably. And so let's talk. Uh, so we have Cordova and, um, and Catchmat. Those are usually prime time. So then we're when, 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 when's that happening down those two places? Yeah, those are usually scheduled uh, in the first or second weekend of May. Uh, they try not to overlap with one another. So folks can go to both and, and that usually coincides well with, with shorebird migration that these birds are typically moving through about then. Some years you get tons of birds, some years you get fewer birds, but it's usually pretty predictable uh, that these shorebirds are moving up the coast, you know, beginning in mid-April through mid-May. And then what about around here in South Central? Where, where are good places to go? 
um, Brodin and what, what are we looking for and, and when? Yeah, yeah. As folks know, you know, Cook Inlet has really impressive wetlands as well. Uh, you can go out in the Coastal Wildlife Refuge and see uh, great shorebird migrations in the spring. Uh, you get a really nice variety of birds coming through the wetlands and ponds out in the Wildlife Refuge. Uh, and you can see them also sometimes often just down at Westchester Lagoon, they'll pop over when the tide gets high and they'll get pushed into the lagoon there. Uh, of course, Potter Marsh is a wonderful place to see birds with the, the boardwalk and the really nice wetlands there that attracts all sorts of waterfowl and shorebirds and uh, lots of Arctic terns. And yeah, it's a great place to view, to view migratory birds. And when, like, are we talking also early May, April? Like, when did the first one, when did the first birds start show up? It always seems like to me the uh, yellow leads, which is another shorebird, shows up first. But when, like, what, what's our timing around here, around Anchorage in particular? Yeah, you're right. The, uh, the yellow legs are often the first shorebird to show up, uh, greater yellow legs and lesser yellow legs. And they're pretty conspicuous, pretty noisy birds with their bright yellow legs. Uh, and they're soon followed, uh, you know, there'll be waterfowl in Anchorage already by that point, by the time the yellow legs show up. Again, these, these shorebirds need uh, water in a liquid form. They, they can't deal with frozen water to access their food. So when things start to thaw, so whenever that may be, uh, these birds will start to show up. So that's typically in early April when you start to see a lot of the migrants pushing through, uh, specifically the waterfowl. And then as things start to warm up for birds like the, the land birds, they'll start showing up through you know mid-April, early May as well. That seems like the hawk watch is that's when I my burden season start is the, what's called the hawk watch up in uh, mm -hmm. the valley up in the Matanuska Valley. Um, yeah, mid mid mid-April. Yeah, yeah, that's always really impressive. I don't know if folks know about that, but the 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 orientation of the mountains there up near near uh, oh god, what is it? Gunsight Lodge, right? It's near. Uh, on the, yep. on the, on the, on the road yeah. to Glen Allen, it really funnels a lot of these migratory raptors. So eagles and hawks and falcons, and it can be really spectacular to go up there and watch them just soaring overhead, riding uh, the spring so, thermals. So it's a little counterintuitive because they're coming, uh, well, it seems north to south. It's more east to west through there. But it does sort of seem like they're sort of wrapping around the Rocky Mountains and coming in through Tanana Valley. Like how are they? What's their route? Do you know much about that? Uh, I'm not as well versed with raptors, but I do know that there are a lot of like uh, researchers who study golden eagle migration in the state, that there are a lot of kind of these geographic funnel points where you can reasonably go and see these different populations. And they've, folks uh, like Carol McIntyre at Denali National Park has done some really cool tracking of golden eagles that birds from Denali, uh, their young will disperse all over Alaska and kind of searching for new breeding spots. And they've done interesting migration counts looking at birds through some of these various geographic, uh, you know, kind of focal points going all over the state. So yeah, the ones that we see here in South Central um, might be peeling over towards the Yukon Delta, you know, for instance, to, to breed in the Kilbuck Mountains or something like that. So they're, they're really coming up these constrained geographies, but spreading all throughout the state. That's right. So we have the raptors, we have the larger, like we mentioned, the sandhill cranes. I remember, oh, was it maybe last year, maybe the year before I was out in Prince William Sound in, in uh, April, mid-April, and you know, day one, not really much, and all of a sudden I woke up and there were 10, it seemed like tens of thousands of geese 
Like they just wow. came. It was yep. just, uh, right over us. Like we're in Passage Canal, and they're flying right through Portage Pass. Uh, yeah. And it was really impressive. I mean, lines of peace that were literally miles long. It was yeah, really yes. cool. Yeah. When they're uh, when they're on, they're really moving. And it's really impressive. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, especially along the coast there, you're apt to see a lot like the the sea duck migration in the spring, uh, birds coming up the coast, often following the herring spawn. That's a similar sort of phenomenon. We're just this amazing movement of sea ducks, like scoters and long-tailed ducks and buffleheads, all moving up the coast, chasing the the herring spawn. Uh, huh. Yeah, really impressive. Yeah, yeah, that really is. Uh, let's um, talk about conservation. Well, let's talk about birding. So we talked about some different spots, the coastal refuge. The, I, I, I live down by Westchester. We just like going down, like we said, to Westchester and walking out on the um, coastal trail there at high tides um, mm -hmm. in May. That's a, a favorite thing to do. Um, uh, where, uh, but as we're birding, uh, talk about some sort of do's and don'ts. Um, when we're out, out looking at these shorebirds or migratory birds, because they just flew from wherever, right? They flew from Southern California. They're probably pretty beat up. So they are. How, how do we how do we respect that and still enjoy watching them? Yeah, for sure. It's nice to give them uh, plenty of space to do what they came up here to do. And, you know, that could mean they're here to breed. It could mean they're here to stop over and gain more, you know, fat reserves to continue their migration. So, yeah, to try to minimize our disturbance to these birds as much as possible is really important. So, uh, you know, I love to look at birds and I love to photograph birds and I often have to, you know, kind of squash my urge to get closer and closer to some of these birds because they're here, you know, like I say, oftentimes exhausted after their migration or say you, you, you find a nest in your backyard. You, it's fun to kind of check out those nests and see what's going on, but have to recognize that, you know, the disturbance of these birds can really affect the survival of that nest. And so to try to minimize our disturbance is really important. That seemed like a good pair of binoculars. Uh, we just got a camera. It wasn't a very expensive camera, but one that we could actually really zoom in on. And, and if we're unsure what it is, take a picture of it and go back. And instead of getting yeah. close to it, you can have this camera or even adapters to spiden slips and stuff where you can get photos and help identify it that way. Yeah. Yeah. They make nice little adapters now that go on spiding scopes where you can just put your, your, your cell phone on there and it'll take a beautiful little picture. Yeah. Uh, without having to get close to the bird at all it's it's pretty impressive yeah um and then where are they going from here so they they fly through uh there some of them obviously stay here um but some especially the shorebirds seem to move through where are they off to yeah again they're headed all over the place really uh you know one of the wimbrels that we tracked uh from breeding sites in northern alaska uh came right through Cook Inlet and staged over on Susitna Flats. Uh -huh. uh, it was funny, a lot of the Wimbrel that we tracked, so we we banded them at a couple of breeding locations, one on the North Slope of Alaska and one at Canudi National Wildlife Refuge in Central Alaska, north of Fairbanks. And they all took really different routes, but some you know came right through Anchorage in the springtime and on their way back to their breeding grounds. So they could be literally headed almost anywhere in the state. Like a, a lot of the snow geese that come through in the spring are headed to Wrangell Island in Russia. Uh, so they're coming far and wide, uh, some to stay right here, like uh, you'll see surf birds, uh, another type of shorebird that are down in Cook Inlet in the spring. And a lot of those birds breed locally here in the Chugach, and they come down to feed uh, when the tide is out, uh, leave their breeding grounds in the Chugach and fly down to the Cook Inlet. So, yeah, they could be anywhere. Yeah, that's another uh, oddity, uh, a bird that's, you know, sort of called a shorebird, mm -hmm. you'll see it up in the alpine. 
Yeah. And, and yeah. his thoughts about that, like what did it just avoid from predators or? Yeah, yeah. shorebirds are, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's often we think of them as just birds of the tundra or birds of the wetlands, but like you say, they're all over the place now that uh, we've learned a lot about uh, montane breeding shorebirds, birds like surf birds and tattlers, uh, just by visiting some of these high elevation sites throughout national parks, the Park Service funded some work, basic surveys, and yeah, there's a really interesting array of uh, breeding strategies that these shorebirds exhibit, some breeding, you know, 3,500 feet uh, up in these uh, yeah. really remote mountains and others breeding uh, really high densities, almost like colonial breeders on the, the tundra of Western Alaska. So they do a little bit of everything. Um, and then the cycle, they'll, they'll breed, they'll have their chicks, they'll raise the chicks. Apparently, uh, assume the chicks have to get big enough to <laughs> fly that first time. That must be something. And there, there must be a lot of mortality that there too with those chicks leaving and, and, and they're trying to dodge predators and humans and everything. So that's quite something. Yeah. And that's, that's a real uh, active area of research is what is the cost of that first migration? Because uh, you're right. Uh, if you think about these shorebirds that are hatching, say uh, early July on the North slope, these birds will be hatching and then they need to be ready to fly to New Zealand in the case of bar-tailed godwits uh, no later than October. So they just have a, a few months to go from uh, the size of, you know, much smaller than a chicken egg, to, uh, grow to be a chick, to suddenly be fat enough to fly nonstop to New Zealand, a place they've never been before. So we assume that that's got to be a pretty perilous journey. But honestly, again, uh, bar-tailed godwits have uh, been here for a long time. They obviously know what they're doing. And that's something we'd really love to study is that first migration and try and better understand uh, the risk of migration for these juvenile shorebirds. Uh, what are some of the conservation status of these birds? Are they stable or declining, doing well? Um, and what are some of the risks to them? Uh, yeah, well, for shorebirds in particular, unfortunately, there's been kind of long-term slow, sometimes not so slow, uh, population declines. The shorebirds as a group have declined worldwide uh, in general. Their populations have declined sometimes to the point of near extinction, like there's a, a bird that breeds over just across from us in the Bering Sea region, the spoon-billed sandpiper that's, you know, believed to have fewer than a thousand individuals left. And we're lucky in Alaska and in other high-latitude regions of the world that there's a lot of really incredible intact habitats that there's a lot of pristine wetlands and these mudflat habitats are largely intact. And a lot of the threats to shorebirds uh, lie outside of the breeding regions. Uh, that's not true for every species, but that's often the case with shorebirds in Alaska that we're lucky in Alaska to have so much wonderful uh, habitat for these birds. But once they leave Alaska, it's not always the case. Yeah, yeah, and then changing climate too. You mentioned that earlier about changing cycles and when yeah. when when spring's happening and will they be able to adjust to that um, exactly okay. and and also for instance like we're, we're looking at the effect of warming climates on uh the availability and abundance of the food that the chicks like to eat that all things being equal uh shorebird chicks would like to be someplace warm that they have higher rates of survival and they grow faster when it's warm so in that sense, uh, a warmer climate might be nice for them, but whether or not that 
warmer climate creates wetland drying, which in turn affects the availability of their food, that might be uh, a negative feedback. So there's a lot of really uh, confusing things to disentangle and there's no easy answer. Yeah, and I imagine also just thinking about plant growth, uh, you know, we had Seth Cantor on the show a month or so ago about talking about caribou and their effects mm -hmm. of growing shrub line and plants. I assume that would affect nesting. They have a preferred nesting spot and an open zone. So they can probably see predators, for instance, that might exactly. become problematic also. Yeah, there's been a lot of evidence, uh, you know, Seth may have discussed this about the increase in shrubs in, in northern Alaska that as climates have warmed slowly, the, you know, shrub line has gone further and further north and higher and higher in elevation. And there's concern that, yeah, that could alter the habitat for some of these birds that like to nest in really open habitats. Great. Let's, um, we're about to wrap up here. Right? Let's go to another fun story. Let's talk about the northern weed eater. Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, weed eater. Yeah. Weed yeah. Yep. Northern yeah. weed eater. That's uh, another incredible long distance migrant. And this is just a little songbird. This is a bird about the size, oh, of the, the sparrows that show up in our backyards, like a white crown sparrow, golden crown sparrow, maybe a little bigger than that, but smaller than a robin. Just uh, honestly, I think I've seen one in Anchorage, and it was during a horrible spring snowstorm where they were uh, forced down into town here. And I saw one in a parking lot of a box store that normally you don't see them here because they breed in high montane areas. Uh, you can see them in the Chugach here. You can go hiking up flat top and you might see a northern weed ear. Uh, but they're amazing because they spend the, the non-breeding season, their, their winter, down in East Africa. So this is a teeny tiny songbird that's migrating between Africa and Alaska, stopping all through Asia, you know, parts of India uh, on their migratory route. Uh, really spectacular, teeny little songbird spending most of its life, honestly, migrating that they don't spend a whole lot of time in Africa because by the time they get there, it's almost time to turn around and start moving back. Wow, that's amazing. So go through that route again. Like Alaska to where? Yeah, well, gosh, I'm trying to picture the map in my head. So they'll fly across the, the Bering Straits and go down the coast of Asia. Asia and, they, yeah. and they start making stops, maybe, oh, gosh, I want to say probably in Shukotka and Russia, and then maybe down into China. And I know they have stopovers throughout India. And then they move across India and fly across the Indian Ocean to intersect the coast of East Africa. And I think uh, there's been work that has tracked Alaska breeding weed ears to, uh, if I'm not mistaken, sites in places like Kenya and Tanzania. So wow. uh, really amazing. Yeah. 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 That's a, that is a, uh, an amazing uh, a tourist <laughs> bird. Not, you know, they're just, yeah, a friend of mine calls those migrate, uh, migration, migrating birds, tourist birds that come in and they leave. But that's a, that's quite the passport right there. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. They're covering a lot of ground. Yeah. yeah. And all come into Alaska for the same reason, uh, you know, a good breeding habitat. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, pretty impressive. And then the last <laughs> one we talked about earlier was the Arctic warbler. Yeah, a smaller bird, bird, right? yeah. yeah, even smaller than the weed ear. They're a very teeny little bird. And uh, you can you can see Arctic warblers if you oh, go out towards Glen Allen. And uh, they're very common around Denali State Park and northern and northwestern Alaska. Again, a, a real specialty from Asia that this is a bird that uh, people fly to Alaska. Uh, birders will come here just to see the Arctic warbler because you're not going to see them in the lower 48 because they're spending the winter down and uh, deep in the heart of uh, jungles of Southeast Asia. So they're doing 
similar to the northern wheat ear, they're flying across the Bering Strait and down the coast of Asia and, and wintering down in places like the Philippines. Yeah, that's, 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 that's amazing. Well, Dan, thank you very much for being on the show. This is Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Paul Tordak. We've been talking with Dan Ruthraff with the uh, USGS Alaska Science Center. Thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Dan, it's been very interesting. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. My pleasure. Welcome back to Outdoor Explorer. We're talking about bird migration. And on this last segment, we're going to talk about the various shorebird festivals uh, around South Central focused primarily on the Kachemak Bay Shorebird Festival. I have Melanie DeFore, who helps coordinate the Kachemak Bay Shorebird Festival. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Hey, how are you? Excellent, excellent. We're recording this in early April in a little snowstorm, so it's sort of hard to believe that uh, the birds are starting to show up, but they are. You just told me that you have some um, shorebirds showing up there already. Is that right? We have some here. Yep. People have gotten some photos of sandpipers already this year and, and we have all our regular birds. But what's really nice is that um, my bay is thawed. It's not frozen. Lots more beaches being exposed and it's starting to look welcoming for them. Excellent. Tell us a bit about the festival. Well, this will be our 30th annual festival wow. of that. Yeah, it was begun in 1992. By at that point, there was talk about putting um, a, having Mariner Park be available for rental for like campers and stuff. And it's a prime feeding area. And people were like, no, let's tell people why this is important and create a festival that we can enjoy them and educate people. And it's um, continued on and grown to be the largest one wildlife viewing festival in Alaska. So it's, it's doing it what they intended. Melanie, what, tell us about the format and sort of what happens over the last four or five days that the festival is going on. Well, it's, we have both, um, we have on land activities, on water activities, um, on the trails and on the boats led by guides um, with experience, birding experience as well as um, kayaking and hiking experience um, for all ages and all abilities. One thing that we've had over the last couple of years and um, is making sure that people of all abilities are able to be um, participants in the festival. We have an all abilities bird outing because birding is for everybody and for everybody. And we all need to be able to um, enjoy what the nature gives us. The other thing that we've added this year, um, in, in addition to the junior birder program that we've had for a long, long time, that program the kids would fledge out of when they turned 12, just like birds fledge out of the nest. This year we've added a teen birder um, group and they'll get to do, they'll continue on with what they know and what they love. They get to even do a hike at Brewing Lake. They'll do some teen specific activities. And so I think people are really excited about that. I know that last year with COVID happening, um, more the demographics of birders kind of shifted. It was noticed that more and more families and younger people have become birders just by having that opportunity to do stuff and even middle school boys would come up hey dude look what I saw you know so that was really exciting um we do have two Shantz scholars coming up this year um from the Shantz Foundation that will be giving um 
presentations that are really diverse. You can, and I can't remember the names of them, um, but they are coming up and going to be speaking at the Homer Public Library on Friday evening. And then we have two people from Audubon, Alaska coming down and they will be speaking not on a shorebird. They're gonna be doing their presentation on corvidae because who else do we have around all the time and who else do we wanna know about? So we're really happy that they're gonna present on that. Um, we all know crows and we, you know, to get to know more about them will be really fun. Um, we have, an owl presentation. We have, um, we're going to have the a film fest um, at the high school, the premiere of a Arctic film, and then a couple other ones about the National Wildlife Refuges, Alaska National Wildlife Refuges, um, at the high school on Saturday evening. You have the birders coffee and um, walkabout at Mossy that Mossy does at Seaside Farms, and that's more about songbirds. But she does, we do go down to the beach, um, and she's been doing um, coffees and cookies at her farm for many years, and it's a loved one. We have a new nature journal journaling um, activity at Seaside Farms, which is also a great place on the bay that people can go. And it's, you know, the land is as important as a seed for birds. And so talk about that and learn how to draw. Kim McNett will be teaching that. Um, all kinds of fun, over a hundred activities that you can choose from, a lot. So yeah, a lot more than just shorebirds. Yeah, shorebirds plus. Yeah, shorebirds plus. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, some great shorebird activities for sure. Do you, yeah. have, a, do you have a keynote? We are do not have a keynote this year. Um, yeah, just because we the capacity, you know, I mean, and honestly, who knows what's going to happen? You know, we don't want to build expectation and then say, gosh, we have to do it on Zoom after all. Right, so, yeah. You know, it's we didn't have. Yeah. So it's that's hard. That's hard. There are lots. We uh, have yeah, the speakers we have. Yeah. Yeah. So you took a. a well, last year, um, or did you have anything last year? We did. We did have the festival, but it was totally hybrid. Hardly any live act. There was the boat tours and stuff, but really limited and very COVID um, aware, which we will continue to be. But we couldn't host like events at the um, Alaska Maritime Visit Visitor Center, which we can this year. We're having far more live things. We did our keynotes last year were virtual on Zoom, and. They were awesome, but it was hard for people to enjoy it and learn as much as they could. Yeah. We could name our, we could call, you know, we could, we thought about, we could just call our speakers the keynotes this year, but that's not, you know, okay. we do have amazing speakers. And what does it cost and how do people register? It costs $20 for the festival, just for the festival pass for one person, then each additional family member is only $5. You register online at K, K catchmaxshorebird.org and it says register here just click on that and then just make sure you any down arrows that you see there is one at the top of the page when you get to it that says um junior and teen burger ballet we have a ballet with the birds as well ballet art and wow. play events yeah it's gonna be amazing um and click on that little down arrow there to see everything and then just scroll down the page. Keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and click on what you want and then keep scrolling down some more and check out. And if you have any, you know, people are, I'm happy to talk to people on the phone if they have trouble doing it. 
Yeah, the way I call it works is you pay the twenty dollars, and then there's activities some are which are free that you sign up for, and some yeah. are which cost it depending. Like yeah. the boat rides tend to cost some money. Though they're yeah. usually they a great go, deal. It ranges up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's boats that go out to um, Lake Clark, and there's you know, it's the boat rides are amazing. And we have a new boat operator this year, and all kinds of favorites that you know know go. Uh, they they've been on the water before the festival, and they know the good spots to take you. So, great. Now, and also the birds, I think I remember really focused on the high tides coming in and yes. intensive high tides uh, out on yes. the spit. Is that right? Yes. And we, and we do in our program, um, we have advice from a bird um, in the program, which you can, um, which is a printed one and they're around or else, or you can just open it on our website and look at it. And I can find the advice from a bird, but how to be, um, observing them and how to, you know, not fall in and get really wet and keep them safe. And yeah, and we have the tide charts on the website on our registration page as well. And so when high tides are in the best time, and we have some um, morning at the marsh events that you can sign up for. And, you know, there's no limit on those. The only reason we put them on, we just want to you to know what's available and the guide or the person that's going to be there to advise you to just anticipate how many people are coming. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that's not a bad really, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I think it's a great event for all levels of birders, beginner birders. I, some of the best birders in the state are there birding. Yes. Yeah. It's I've I've uh, love going down there. I always learn a lot from the talks about just how to identify different birds and their natural history. Uh, and it's pretty cool to see these birds on a stop through. Some of them are some of them are at the end of their journey, but a lot of them are just flying through on their way and. I'll come back to Anchorage and I might even see them back up here. Maybe even see exactly. the same birds. So it's sort of neat to join their migration a little bit. Yeah, they love to eat what we have on our beaches. So get ready for the next part. That's what they're doing here. Great. Thank you, Melanie, for joining us. This, um, this has been Melanie Dufour with the Catamat Bay Shorebird Festival. We'll have information on this festival, also the other festivals, including the Cordoba Shorebird Festival, which is a very similar event, uh, but in Cordoba the same weekend. Uh, this year. Sometimes they're in different weekends. Uh, this year they are the same weekend, but we'll have information on the, that event also on the Outdoor Explorer website. Melanie, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my guests, Dan Ruthroff and Melanie DeFour. Finally, a big thanks to our producer, Airport. This is your host, Paul Tordak, and from all the hosts at Outdoor Explorer, go birding, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.